Amen. What I want to do today is jump into uh, Revelation chapter 20 with you guys. I'm using the mic because they record and there are people that don't make it that ask if it's up and listen to it every week because they can't make it for whatever reason. So we wanted to make sure that they have the reading of the scripture and, and all that that we discuss online. Amen. Um, and we'll look at Revelation 20 and we'll go through the first. Uh, we'll go through the verses and we'll ju- we're going to jump around and and we see um, during this time um, there's a millennial reign and that's what we're going to be talking about today. A millennial kingdom that is established. Um, we discussed how. There's a time of tribulation. Um, We talked about within that time of tribulation, there's going to be moments of God's judgment um, released upon those that are on the earth. Um, Some very interesting times. Um, There are so many different views on the tribulation. There are so many different views on the rapture. But the millennial reign, um, one of the main views is, is it really a thousand years or could it be just a time period? A period of time, but um, I think that's a stupid debate to get into. <laughs> Regardless, so dumb. You know, people love to f- fight or just argue about just every little thing, and uh, I'm not here to do that today. I, I just want to read the scriptures of the millennial kingdom. The only thing that there are different views when we jump into the millennial kingdom is Gog and Magog. There's a war that pre-trib. Um, a P, the, P, the pre-trib belief that they believe that the Gog and Magog, this massive war, that it's actually going to take place after the millennial kingdom when Satan is released from the bottomless pit. A lot of uh, Bible teachers believe that Gog and Magog happen um, within the great tribulation before that where it kicks off um, where Gog and Magog will, they be, a lot of Bible teachers believe where um, it might be Russia in that area and, and with Iran, and, and they will help them to dis- try to come and fight against Israel, and Israel once and for all will destroy the Temple Mount, and uh, uh, that temple is finally once and all for all uh, destroyed where the mosque is at, and then the Antichrist who is in power claims a peace treaty after this massive war of Gog and Magog, and they help erect this new temple of the Jewish people, and, um, and, and, and it, it's within that seven years, and then in the halfway point, we see where the Antichrist turns their back on it, so turns their back on Israel and um, causes havoc upon the Jewish people. So that's one belief. One is that it's going to come after the millennial reign. Regardless, we know that there's a war um, that's going to happen. We know that. We know times of war will happen. Um, we know that. Wherever you believe Gog and Magog is going to be, it's a war. Wherever you believe the Battle of Armageddon, which we see it, it's going to be at, it's a war. And there's wars that are going to be taking place as people are trying to destroy um, Israel. Now, when the seven-year tribulation is done and God is done away pouring out his judgments, like we spoke last week, we talked about the seals that are opened. We talked about the seven trumpets that were blasted. And the seven bowls that were poured out on the earth. And Christ does something new. And what, they, what he does is he brings forth a millennial kingdom. Millennium means a thousand years. 
That's why it's called Millennial Kingdom. Okay? Millennial Kingdom. And we see it here in Revelation chapter 20. Okay? Chapter 20. There are many other passages in the Scripture that describe a period of time um, of the a period of time which seems to be the millennial kingdom and we'll go into some of those um, passages and um, we believe that there's a thousand years and whether you want to argue with someone or not whether it's a thousand literal years you could go ahead and I feel it's wasting our time to do that um, but we know that there's a thousand years and um, in this thousand year this long period both in the Old Testament and the New Testament um, speak about it, and we're, we're going to look at that. Now, what is this millennial kingdom? As we look in it, it's something that you and I have never experienced. It's going to be um, close to what Eden was like, okay? It's basically like paradise. It's Eden. Everything was fine in Eden. There was no problem in the Garden of Eden. Um, everything was at peace in the Garden of Eden. When a millennial kingdom comes, it's going to be a, a period of time just like that of the Garden of Eden. Paul, as we jump into, we'll get to Romans 20 and all that, but if you're taking notes, I'm sorry, that's where it's found that. We start seeing the, but we'll get into these verses. But Paul talks about something very similar, <clears throat> and he speaks of a time when creation would be liberated from frustration or from decay. It's actually found in Romans chapter 8, if you're taking notes. Romans chapter 8. Look at, I want to go around the Bible as we also jump into Revelation 20. In Romans chapter 8, um, verses 19 through 22, Paul says this. Paul says this. For the earnest expectation... All right, so you put that one up. For the creation, I wasn't sure what you did. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, by the, but by the will of the one who subjected it. In hope, look at verse 21. That the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage and decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. I think we could kind of agree with that, what we say, right? Creation has been groaning. The world is groaning, groaning. We have people being decapitated. We have wars in the Middle East. We have things being stirred in all these different countries. We have America um, in debt. I mean, there's so many things that are going on in our country, um, uh, so many things in an all-time high. Um, there's before you know it, uh, uh, things like marijuana now will be cleared. Um, you know, all things that Bible teaches, whether it's same sex, everything. The times that we live in, the earth is groaning, groaning. And Paul says that creation itself will be liberated from its bondage. Bondage to decay and, and that it would be brought into a glorious freedom glorious freedom of the children of God. So we see that Paul talks even to the church of Rome about a time where when there will be uh, pains in this earth, but yet the children of God will be out of time liberated. The people will be liberated um, from this time. And could that be talking here about the millennial kingdom? Very interesting. 
Very interesting. Okay? We're going to read some passages, and you're going to see how it's going to be so different. People will live long lives, very long lives, long lives like the early generations did. Does anyone know the oldest man in the Bible recorded that lived? Who was the oldest man recorded to live in the Bible? Anyone know that? If I had a gift, I would, I would, I would give it to you if you knew. I'll, you know what? I'll buy you uh, lunch or dinner. One day after church, we'll go on a lunch date. Does anyone know who the old... Rudy, you do not get on your... Uh, he's on the phone. On the, uh, he's like, free lunch. I'm going, baby. Well, I, I, my grandmother can't get it because she's never going to let me pay for a free lunch to give her lunch. She'll never let me pay for her lunch. But... It's... Um, Abraham? No. Noah's son. What was, uh, what was one of Noah's sons named? Methuselah. Methuselah. 969 years old. He almost, he almost lived, he almost lived, he almost lived the millennium. Almost lived the millennium. 969. I wonder how they aged. Obviously way different than us. You know, nowadays we're lucky if we hit 70. 70 years old, you know. And um, so, very interesting. We're going to live long years like those who lived 900 years. Methuselah, for example, reached a, almost a millennium. Dying at 969. Wow. Look what Isaiah says, guys. Check this out. Isaiah 65, 19 through 25, if you're taking notes. It's talking about the millennial kingdom. Have any of you ever studied or read verses on the millennial kingdom? So this will be the first time many of you hear it or read stuff like that. It's, it's going to be interesting then for you. I like this because it's just fun. You know, I said last week, breathe a little bit. Next week, it's a little bit funner. <laughs> so watch this. He says, I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will be heard in it no more. Isn't that awesome? Israel, Jerusalem will cry no more. Like They have their temple. They have their land. They have their enemies destroyed. Isn't that cool? Israel's like, no more enemies. Finally, our whole life we've had enemies. Man, since Abraham's sons, they were enemies. Jacob and Esau, man, they were enemies. I mean, just think about this. So... When you look at this, um, he goes on, he says, Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days. One of the worst things a parent could ever experience is the death of an infant, especially a mother, you know, carrying a child for nine months and then it, it dies at a year or dies at a few months or even dies in the womb. That, that's hard for a mother. So watch this. An infant... It won't exist that they just live for a few days. Or an old man who does not live out his years. This is good. He who dies at 100 will be thought a mere youth. Man, I'm blessed if I live up to 100 right now. He who fails to reach 100 will be considered accursed. For as the days of a tree, so will the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the works of their hands. They will not toil in vain or bear children doomed to misfortune for they will be a people blessed by the lord and their descendants with them before they call i will answer that's so cool right that god's like i'm going to answer them before they even have a a desire to call like there's not going to be a need in your life so because i'm going to answer you before this need is ever there or present can you imagine living in a world where your needs are met before they're even presented like it's just everything's perfect and that's what god means here and then he goes on in verse 25, like this. I really like this verse. The wolf and the lamb would feed together. That's weird because we all know that the wolf will eventually what? 
strike, attack, kill the lamb. But not in the millennial. In the millennial kingdom, they eat together, they're raised together, and the lion will eat the straw like an ox. How can a lion eat a straw like an ox? What does that mean during the millennial kingdom about lions and about these kind of animals, these uh, carnivore kind of animals? If they're eating straw like an ox, what do you think is happening with the lions? They want to attack people? What are they becoming? Veja? Vegetarians. They're no longer meat eaters. They're no longer carnivores. They're eating from the grass of the field. Lions. This is so cool. But dust will be the serpent's food. So I love this. Serpent stays what? Serpent stays cursed. <laughs> yeah, you're done. You stay cursed. No luck for you. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountains. What a beautiful time this is going to be. Throughout the millennium, there's going to be no more wars. There's going to be no more violence. The wild beasts will even like lions be tame and friendly. The whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of God. It's, it's going to be just so amazing, this millennial kingdom. And guys, look how amazing the millennial kingdom is going to be. And we haven't even hit the eternal kingdom yet. And this is just the millennial, the millennial reign that we're talking about. I'm going to read another scripture, and it's also found in Isaiah. It's way before, though, in chapter 11, verses 6 through 10. Isaiah 11, 6 through 10. Okay? Very similar to Isaiah 65 that I just read. Very similar. Isaiah 11, 6 through 10. Isaiah says, or writes, was revealed to him, the wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion, the yearling together, a little child will lead them. A child will lead a leopard and a lion. Like, here, kitty, kitty. That's so cool. The millennial kingdom, how it's going to be. The cow will feed with the bear. Wow. I want a bear. Like, if I want, I want, to, I want to have a bear as a pet. Like, that's, that's pretty neat. And then it says, their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox, exactly what I just read. The infant will play near the hole of a cobra and the young child will put his hand in the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him and his place of rest will be glorified. Guys, stop. Who is the root of Jesse that is raised like a banner over the people and that the nation will rally to him? Who's this root? What does a root mean? A root of Jesse means the offspring. Well, first off, who's Jesse? <laughs> Jesse's a male in, this, in his name here. Jesse is the father of what? King David. So who is this offspring of Jesse that is a banner over his people, that people rally to him, and his place, the root of Jesse, his place is a place of rest and glory. Here is Isaiah in the Old Testament prophesying about the Messiah, Jesus Christ. How cool is that? And he's saying that in those days, Jesus will be lifted up before all nations. Jesus will be the one that every nation comes to. There are no more religions. 
There's no more religions. There's not Muslims. There's not different sects of, 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 of Christianity. It's either, it's, it's millennial and it's God's people with the knowledge of Jesus Christ. There's, there's no more holy wars. It's, it's just Jesus and the world reigning for a thousand years and everyone is glorifying the banner that is lifted over them and they rally to his name, Jesus Christ. That's so cool, man. So cool. Because the whole earth is full of knowledge of the Lord. All nations will worship God now. All nations will worship God. And many of the promises of God made to Abraham and Abraham's physical descendants, which is the nation of Israel, will be fulfilled during this time. Israel will be the chief of all nations. Jerusalem will be the capital during the millennial kingdom of the world. And God will restore the kingdom of Israel and people from all nations will come up to Jerusalem to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Israel is going to be it. Jerusalem is going to be it. You know, I thought about this, what I'm, gonna, what I'm sh sharing with you now. When I went to Israel and I stood on the Mount of Olives, and when I stared in, and I just, just stared at, the, at Jerusalem, and I stared at the Mount, of, uh, Mount Moriah, which is where the temple is at, uh, the, the Dome of the Rock is at, where the temple was, used to be at. I just thought about that in my own head. You know, I didn't vocalize everything I thought in my head. But one of the things that I remember thinking in my head was, one day this place is going to be the center of the world. One day it's going to be the center place of worship. It's going to be the place where they're king of the world, right here in Jerusalem. It's going to be so cool. It's going to be so interesting. People from all nations are going to have to go to Jerusalem and proclaim that the God of Israel is the one true living God. Isn't that amazing? For so many years, everyone's been fighting against the God of Israel. And then for a thousand years, they're not going to be able to do nothing but glorify the God of Israel. It's <laughs> so neat. So neat. Let's read Isaiah again, huh? Just to show you some of these points. And then we'll go to Zechariah chapter 8. So Isaiah uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. It says, This is what Isaiah saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established. Guys, that's talking about Mount Moriah. As chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. Many people will come and say, come. Let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, the house of God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. <laughs> They're not going to need spears and swords. So funny. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. So you're going to have a military. And like, why do you have a military? Like, I don't know. We really don't need it. For a thousand years, we don't need military. We don't need weapons. We don't need arm, arm, um, an army or weaponry. So notice what he says here. I'm going to grab the mountain of the Lord's temple and it will be established among chief, among chief of all mountains. So, so Jerusalem becomes the capital of the world. Jerusalem becomes it. What would you say the capital of the world is today? Who knows? If the world were to have a capital, what would it be? For me, it's still Jerusalem. <laughs> but what would it be? Some people say New York, right? New York, the capital of the world. It's not. It's not even the capital of our country, but whatever. Jerusalem will be the capital of the world. 
Look at what Zechariah says, another prophet prophesying about these days. In uh, chapter 8, verse 20 through 23. Zechariah 8, 20 through 23. He says, this is what the Lord Almighty says. <clears throat> Zechariah, sorry, chapter 8, verse 20 through 23. Prophesying of the millennial kingdom. Look what he says. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Many people and the inhabitants of many cities will come and the inhabitants of one city will go to another and say, let us go at once to entreat the Lord and seek the Lord Almighty. I myself am going and many peoples and powerful nations will come to Jerusalem to seek the Lord. How cool is that? That's so interesting. They will seek the Lord Almighty and to entreat him. And this is what the Lord Almighty says. In those days, ten men from all languages and nations will take firm hold of one Jew by the hem of his robe and say, let us go with you because you've heard that God is with you. What is that saying about the Jewish person? It's giving them what again? It's giving them authority, someone might say. It's giving them favor among the world. So you will have people from different nations, ten people from ten different nations, let's say, and they will find one Jew and grab a hold of that one Jew, and they will say, take us with you. We heard that you hear from God. So even the Jewish people, man, become blessed. I mean, I, I'm thinking that people are going to wish and long that they could be Jews, you know, during those days. I wish I was from Israel, people are going to think during those days. So, so it's very in interesting, um, Isaiah and Zechariah's words. I would say it's very interesting, very interesting. But do you know that Zechariah doesn't end there in prophecy? Zechariah continues in prophecy. And one of the things that Zechariah prophesies about, he prophesies about a big battle, okay? A battle that you could look at as the battle of Armageddon. And he begins to describe a time where the Lord will be king over all the earth. And Jerusalem will be peaceful again and secure. Let me ask you a question. When was the last time Jerusalem was peaceful and secure? Never. <laughs> never. It's, it's really never been peaceful and secure. Never. But there's a time that Zechariah says it will be peaceful and it will be secure. Watch this. Let's read it. It's Zechariah chapter 14, uh, 16 through 21. Zechariah 14, 16 through 21. We're good? Zechariah 14, 16 through 21. It says, Then the survivors from all the nations that have attacked Jerusalem will go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord Almighty, and to celebrate the festival of tabernacles. This is interesting because the people say, Well, what do you mean? What do you mean the people that uh, attacked Jerusalem will go up? I've been talking about the mark of the beast. I've been talking about the wrath. I've been talking about the destruction on a lot of these people. But what does this verse mean? I have no idea. The only thing that I could possibly think about is that God happens to row in certain individuals into the millennial kingdom. That's the only thing I could think of. 
Because look what Zechariah is saying. Some people must roll in um, into the millennial kingdom. People that were there during the tribulational time. Survivors from all the nations. So survivors. To be a survivor, that means something broke loose. Something happened. Who knows what these people's prayer was, what their cry were. Who knows why the Lord saved them. But they will go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord Almighty, and to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. If any of the peoples of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord Almighty... They will have no rain. If the Egyptian people do not go up and take part, they will have no rain. And the Lord will bring on them the plague he inflicts on the nations that do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. This will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not go up to celebrate. On that day, holy to the Lord will be inscribed on the bells of the horses and the cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like the sacred bowls in front of the altar. Every pot in Jerusalem and Judah will be holy to the Lord Almighty. And all who come to sacrifice will take some of the pots and cook in them. And on that day, there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord Almighty. It's interesting when you read this passage. Because as you read this passage, you see this um, new thing that God is doing in, Jer in Jerusalem. You see this worship that's taking place constantly in Jerusalem. You see how people from all over here, they mention Egypt, have to constantly come to Egypt to worship in the Feast of Tabernacles at Jerusalem. And Jerusalem becomes the center of the world again. Not only does it become the center of the world, um, but right, he, right then and here you see where Christ will be king, the Lord will be king over all of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem will be peaceful and secure. And if anyone dares not to worship the God of Israel, then God says, well, watch what I'm going to do to your land. So you have no choice but to come and offer up offerings to me. Come and worship me. It's very interesting um, when you look at Isaiah um, and Zechariah, very, very, very interesting. Um, so uh, I just wanted to read that to you just so you could get an idea of how it's going to be like. There will be other nations, probably not 7 billion people, probably not 7 billion people off the bat because we know that a lot of people are wiped out. My goodness, one of the bowls was what? One-third of the people are wiped out. That's 2 billion people, which is probably less because of all the deaths already during those days. So we know that there are a people that are going to flow into the millennial kingdom and they're going to repopulate. Israel will repopulate and make a lot of this millennial kingdom. And as this repopulation occurs, I want you to focus on this thing. People are living to 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. It's very easy to repopulate a world when you're living to 900 years old. You guys get what I'm saying? Okay. And when money's not an issue, when food is not an issue and all that, you could have a lot of kids because nothing is an issue. So it just makes sense how nations will be established again quick. It just makes sense how people groups. I'm, you know, it's hard to understand this because we think like today. We think governments and nations. I'm not exactly sure how the governments are going to be. I don't know how they're going to flow, how they're going to... I don't get it, how, they, how they, it's going to be structured. But all these nations will serve and worship the one true God of Israel. It's going to be very interesting, very interesting times. But there's something that we have not spoken about. There's something that we have not talked about. And that is Satan. Everything's at peace. Why isn't Satan doing stuff? Why isn't Satan taking care of business? Well, Revelation 20 that I told you to start at talks to us about Satan and we discover the main reason why there's so much peace 
why there's paradise on earth for a thousand years in this millennial kingdom. Because the devil is in a prison. He is locked up. And that's what we're going to talk about. So, because he's in chains, many of the works and the activities which Satan has been instigating for centuries since, since the Garden of Eden, all the temptations, all the lies, think about that. All the spiritual blindness, all the deception, murder, sickness, oppression, all these things will be no more. Because Satan, the author of all these things, is done. He is held in chains. And that's just to, to mention a few. They just cease. They just cease. Can you imagine being John the Apostle, the Lord showing you this vision and writing the next verses that we're about to read? Watch this. Revelation 20, 1, 2, and 3. Revelation 20, 1, 2, and 3. And watch what it says. It says, And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, having the key to the abyss. The New King James says it this way, which I like the way the New King James puts it, having the key to the bottomless pit. That's the phrase that I'd rather you use, the bottomless pit. And the great chain is in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil. He's Satan. And he bounds him for a thousand years, verse 3. And he casts him into the bottomless pit. And he shuts him up, and a seal is set on him, so that he should deceive the nations no more, Till the thousand years were finished. That's interesting, isn't it? Imagine John seeing that. Imagine John writing that. How ecstatic he must have been. Yes, Satan is defeated for a thousand years, but he is defeated. And what an interesting um, scripture this is. A great chain in his hand, the angel comes. He forcefully grabs a hold of Satan. He imprisons him for a thousand years Ever since our first parents, who are our first parents? Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. The serpent has wrecked and caused havoc on all mankind. How many of your families have been caused, uh, have been havoced by the enemy? How many of your lives, you know, it happens. The enemy comes and havocs our lives. But then we learn that this beautiful thing in verses 1, 2, and 3. Do you guys remember the book of Job, chapter 1 and 2? I'm going to remind you guys. The Lord is in his throne. The Lord is in his throne. And Satan shows up. Literally, Satan shows up. You could study that on your own later on. He shows up. And the Lord looks at Lucifer, or Satan, who is Satan now, and he says, what are you doing in my throne? Didn't I, didn't I kick you out? What are you doing back up here? So it's interesting because this is a real event. So it means that Satan went back up to the throne room of God. And he appeared to God on his, in his throne. And God says, what are you doing here? And Satan says, oh, well, you know, I've been walking to and fro, back and forth on the earth, and I really, I don't know who else to tempt. I don't know who else to destroy. I've um, been kind of bored, so I came up here to see what you're up to. <laughs> I'm par- obviously, I'm summarizing my own translation here. And God happens to look at Satan and says, hmm, Have you ever considered my servant what? My servant Job. 
Like, if I was Joe, that's the first thing I'll say when I get to heaven. God, why? Why did you mention me? But have you ever considered my servant Job? And he's like, actually, yeah. If you read the story in chapter 1 and 2, he's like, actually, yeah, I have. But Lord, you're teasing me. This is Satan talking to God. You're teasing me because you know very well that you put a protection around Job and no one's able to touch him and harm him. <laughs> but then he tells God, but God, I, I tell you what. If you take away that protection around Job and you let me put my hand on him, I bet you he'll turn his back on you and curse you. And you know what the Lord says? It's like a game almost. <laughs> He's like, challenge accepted. He goes, I let you do whatever you want to, Job, but there's one thing that you cannot do. Don't you take his life. So what does Satan do? He goes and bankrupts his business, destroys his home, Destroys his children home, kills all his seven children. He makes them sick. He's filled with boils that are popping and disgusting. He goes out to live in a dump field, scrapes himself with pizza, pieces of pottery. His wife comes, instead of helping him and blessing him, she says, curse your God and die. She's almost turning her back on him. His three best friends come to him, and instead of consoling him, they say what? Job, check your heart. There has to be sin in your life. That's why you're going through this. And Job's like... No, you idiots. You're the worst friends I could ever ask for. Instead of helping me, you're bashing me. Think about that. I'm not going to preach on Job because I could get into a whole spiel on Job. But I want you to notice what's special um, about that story. What is special about that story? What's so special? Say it again. Job didn't turn his back. All right, I went too much into the story. That's what happened. But what about the whole encounter with Satan and God? What's so special about that story? Anyone know? So communication. Satan has no power before God. As a matter of fact, Satan has to ask permission before, from God. As a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, so beautiful. God sets limits on Satan and says, you could do anything you want, but just don't do this. Here's your boundaries that you could play with. God is all authoritative supreme. And Satan cannot do anything without divine permission. That's amazing. It's amazing. You know what I like about Revelation chapter 20, verses 1, 2, and 3? Who is the one that brings a chain and throws him to the bottomless pit. The angel. The angel. If I were to ask you right now, who is God's enemy, who would you say? Don't think so deep. Satan. 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 But come on, let's think about it now biblically. Who's the, God of, who's the enemy of God? Satan is not an enemy. Satan, Satan is not even a threat to God. I'm going to prove it to you. Satan is his own worst enemy. He's going to get what he deserves. But Satan is not even a threat to God. I'm going to prove it to you. In Revelation 21, 2, and 3, as the millennial kingdom starts, you just said that the angel throws Satan to where? To the bottomless pit. Where's God in all this? Not a worry in the world. He sends his very own angel to defeat that very own fallen angel. Did you guys see that? So Satan is not even a worry or a threat to God. God doesn't even go fight against Satan.
God sends his angel. I'm not going to waste my time with you. It's too easy. And God sends his own angel to chain him and send him into the bottomless pit. I love that. So just one angel can overpower. One angel. A lot of people believe this is Michael because he's the prince of Israel and all that. But one angel can overpower and completely subdue the devil. Our adversary may be strong, but he's not strong enough. And he's not even a threat to God. I'm going to tell you what (laughs) Satan is. He thought he could do something that he'll never be able to do. And he's almost like if he's a puppet in God's hands. He can't mess with God. I love Revelation 23. It says, after that, he'll be set free for a short time. And we see an insight of what's going to happen here. The obvious question there is, well, if God is all-knowing, why for a thousand years do we enjoy peace? Does this world live through this spiritual revival with no wars? Everyone is living fine, healthy lifestyle. There's no devil, no temptation, no deception. Why on earth would God want to let the devil go free again? Right? Wouldn't we normally ask that? Okay? And there is another question that we could ask that will perhaps help us find um, some answers when we think about this one. Why didn't God just lock up the ancient serpent, the devil, in the Garden of Eden after everything that happened? Surely he could have done so, preventing Satan from deceiving Adam and Eve and eating the forbidden fruit. But he deliberately left the serpent there to test them to see if they would be loyal to him and obey his command. A perfect paradise like Eden, even one like the millennial earth, even though it is free of sickness, pain, and death, listen to this, it is still incapable of securing the heart of man. So no amount of blessing can take the place of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Knowing his love, his forgiveness, his grace, when Satan is released in the millennium, the nations are tested by his temptation after enjoying a thousand years of blessing and bliss it says here as soon as they are tempted as soon as their heart is tried they fall headlong into the devil's arms such as human nature apart from the saving transforming grace of god why does god continue to allow satan satan is never really an enemy of god because if god wanted to with one word he could destroy satan in all of hell but the reason why he does it is because god always desired to have a relationship with his creation and if there was no enemy deceiver in the land everyone would be a robot and it wouldn't be genuine love for god but he wants a people that know what's out there but yet still to choose to serve and love him that's amazing so it's not that the enemy's a threat like the bible says that god in his the lord is in his throne and the earth is his what footstool his ottoman his resting pad so he's not worried when you think of someone sitting on the throne with a feet on a on an ottoman or on a resting pad You don't think about a worrying king. A worrying king is someone who's pacing back and forth. God is relaxing. With all the evil that's going on, there is not even a drip of worry in the mind of God. Why? Because God really doesn't have an enemy that is a match because everything that's out there is his creation. Do you guys get it? This is beautiful. This is beautiful. It's beautiful. So what happens then when Satan gets released? God's going to use him. He's going to use him to fulfill his perfect plan and purposes. And we see what he does in verse 7. 
In chapter 20, verse 7, we see what he does. It says, when the thousand years have expired, or when the thousand years are over, let's see which one we're going to put up. I'll wait for you guys. We're chapter 20, verse 7. Oh, perfect. I'm going to end here for now. Um, 8.30, I wanted to end. I've been going long every Wednesday. All right. Which, what translation is that? The one that we have? All right. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. In number, they are like sand of the seashore. And they march across the breadth of the earth and surround the camp of God's people, the city he loves. That's Jerusalem, guys. But fire comes down from heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was thrown now, not into the bottomless pit, but where is Satan thrown now? Into the lake of fire. This is where pre-tribs argue with the whole, where is Gog and Magog? And people continue to argue about where does Gog and Magog take place at this battle, this war. So he throws them into this lake of fire. I lost my, my eyes left the page. <laughs> okay. Thrown into this lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. So we see it's a later time. So the, the, there's only two people right now in the lake of fire. It's the Antichrist and this religious figurehead. The religious man and the Antichrist are in the lake of fire. And guess who goes to meet them there now? Satan goes to meet them. Hey, guys. <laughs> Not too nice over here. If you've ever seen what, how the Lord describes this lake, it's not a pleasant place. It's a place where your skin constantly melts off your face, gnashing of teeth, worms in and out of your body. It's a place where you never get used to dying. You die forever. It's terrible. Terrible. The worst thing anything, anyone could ever experience. Ever. So he's burning sulfur and the beast is there. And they will be tormented day and night forever. And when? Forever. So what does Satan do? He gets released from the bottomless pit. He comes back out of the bottomless pit. He quickly, um, the masses, look how quickly they come back under Satan's spell. And one has to wonder what was in their hearts during those many years of blessing prior to the devil's release. And this is one great, mighty, powerful battle, Gog and Magog, coming a thousand years after the battle of Armageddon. So many arguments, so many views on Gog and Magog, Russia, Iran, Islamic countries that will be established again through Satan, who knows, all these different views. We see the names are actually mentioned in Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39. Gog and Magog is actually mentioned there. But we see clearly that the Jews, the Jews are God's people in Israel, God's people, and they're God's people during this millennial kingdom. We see that Jerusalem is the capital of the world during this time. And during this time, with whatever you want to say Gog and Magog is, whatever it is, it's a war that's happening. Satan directs his entire wrath against Israel and the Jews. One last time, one last shot. He thought he had them in the, in the, uh, in the tribulation, but now he's going to try again the millennial, after the millennial. So one last final battle, and the enemies of Israel, filled with hatred by Satan himself, come from all four corners of the earth to attack God's beloved city, Jerusalem. And at the close of, close of the millennium, the trinity of evil, where do they end up? Remember, God has a trinity. Father, 
Son, Holy Spirit. Satan has a trinity. Satan, false prophet, and the Antichrist. So his evil trinity, which once terrorized the earth during the tribulation, is finally reunited. Reunited, and it doesn't feel good. It does not feel good. And as they re are reunited, they're reunited in the lake of fire, and this ancient serpent of old, whose evil works span all 66 books of this beautiful Bible. Satan's works are all over it. All over it. Satan's works are all over it. Starting in Genesis chapter 3, with his seduction of Adam and Eve, is finally terminated once and for all. No matter how the devil's forces of darkness and may present itself, this is how the battle ends, destroyed the battle ends like this. We win, God wins, and the devil loses. That's the end of it all. The devil is defeated. We sing a song at church. The enemy has been defeated. Death could, we know the enemy has not physically been defeated yet. But we know in the believer's life, he is defeated now. Physically, he's defeated in your life. But there's going to be a time that not only is he defeated in your life physically, he is defeated before the world forever. And that's on this great day. Satan is defeated. He's doomed. And our victory is certain. The God of peace, the God of peace, will crush Satan under his feet. Hallelujah to Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen? I'm going to see if I can read a verse. Let me, let me see if I can find it real quick. Maybe I'll end with this and we're done. The enemy is in defeat. He says this. Paul is writing to the Romans and he says what I just said, but it's found in, a, if you want to write this on your notes, Romans 16, 20. And the God of peace will crush Satan under his feet shortly. And the God of peace will crush Satan under, sorry, under your feet shortly. Sorry, sorry. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Paul tells the Romans that Satan will be crushed once and for all. May the grace of God be with you. Amen. Thank you for that day where Satan is destroyed. People are not going to die and go to hell anymore. Where people are not going to have sicknesses. and where People are not going to have all these things that the world gives them because of the curse that Satan has brought. I can't wait for a day of paradise. I can't wait for a kingdom that is eternal, that never perishes. And I'm looking forward to the day I see Jesus. I hope you are. Because our Bible says very, very, and we'll continue. Next week, we'll start getting into how do we reign? How do we live within the millennial kingdom? We just introduced it. What is the reigning in the millennial kingdom look like? So we'll talk about that next week. But um, the Bible says that um, life is but a what? A vapor. One translation says it's but a mist. It's here for one moment. And it's gone the next. I spray this spray that my students got me for breeze in my classroom. I spray it, shh, and you see the thing go in the air. And then, out of nowhere, it just disappears. That's what life is. It's a mist. It's here for one moment. It's gone the next. It's like the morning dew on the grass. 
It's here in the, mo- in the moment. When you look at it again, it's gone. That's how fast our life goes. So we are prepared. We are preparing, and we are watchful. We're waiting for the great day of the Lord or, or until the day that we're going to be with him. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for tonight. You're good. You're awesome. You're mighty. You're beautiful. You're loving. You're a good God. I thank you for the word of God, which is so true. Thank you for the word of God, which is our peace. The word of God, my understanding, my foundation in which I live on. I pray that we would hunger for it, that we would long for it in these days more than ever, that you would continue to speak to our hearts and our lives. And I pray as we read these times that are to come, that we would just be joyous and awaiting for your great arrival or for your great deliverance of delivering us up to you. We just thank you. Be glorified for the rest of this evening. Keep us safe and let us have a great remainder of the week. We pray for Friday night. We pray for Sunday morning. We pray for a coming weekend that will be restful and refreshing and just uh, be glorious over all our services. It's in the mighty name of Jesus Christ and together we say amen and amen. Cool. We're done. Any, any, any questions? Anything you guys want to talk about or anything like that? But other than that, we're done.